The scripture reading for this evening comes from Mark 12, 28 through 34. This is God's word. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. So you'll notice at the end of this passage that this is the, uh, the last time anybody asked Jesus a question uh, before he is on trial and headed to the cross. And it's the last of a series of questions where Jesus has been confronted by a variety of lit- religious leaders in Jerusalem. It's the last week of his life. And here, this scribe comes to Jesus. Apparently, he has been listening in, hearing what's going on, and noticing that Jesus seems to be holding his own. He's answering. He's impressed with Jesus' answers. And so he comes to Jesus with a question of his own. And it's a fairly straightforward question. He simply asks, what is the most important commandment? Or to put it another way, we could, we could put it like this, that it's another way to ask, what is the essence of biblical faith and life according to Jesus? That's what this scribe would like to know. What are you supposed to do? What does God want from you? And as simple as that may seem, uh, there is definitely a note of irony at the end that I think frames the passage for us a bit when after Jesus responds to the scribe and the scribe responds to Jesus and Jesus responds again, as if getting the last word in here, Jesus, Mark tells us in verse 34 that he saw that he answered wisely. And then he said to him this, I think, rather curious statement. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He says, you are not far from the kingdom. It almost has a ring of so close and yet so far. <laughs> How close is this guy? What does he understand? Jesus gives this rather enigmatic response, and then the, the, the passage is over. Whatever Jesus means by this, clearly the scribe needs something more than just a wise answer. He needs something more than just a good encounter with this sagely teacher, uh, Jesus. And in order for us to discover what that something more might be, I want to look with you at three things from this passage. I want to look with you at the demand of love. I want to look at the true nature of sin. And then we'll finish with the power to love. 
the power that we need to love. So the demand of love, the true nature of sin, and the power to love. First, the, let's look at the demand of love, which really is uh, throughout this entire passage as um, Jesus responds to this scribe. But he responds to this question, teacher, what is the most important commandment? And this was a common question among religious experts in Jesus' day. Uh, And you can perhaps understand why when you realize there are about 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible. And like this scribe who was a religious law expert, he and others would often debate and discuss what they would refer to as the heavy commandments or the lighter commandments. And in fact, even in Matthew chapter 23, when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, Jesus describes what he calls the weightier matters of the law. He describes those as justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so here, this scribe is coming to ask, if you could boil it all down, Jesus, to a sentence, to one commandment, what would you say all of God's commandments, all 613 of them, what are those really all about? And Jesus' answer in verse 29 and down through 31 is essentially, you are to love God with all of who you are, and you are to love your neighbor to the same degree that you love yourself. Now, that might, especially if you grew up in in religious setting or around Christian people, uh, you've probably heard that before. And in the first century even, Jesus' answer wouldn't have been all that surprising. There there are writers around this time, before and after, who would uh, say very similar things. But the thing that's particularly interesting about Jesus is Jesus, as far as we know, Jesus is the first person to connect these two commands. And there are two commands that we can tie down very specifically in the Old Testament. So first, when Jesus here says, in verse 29, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And it would be hard to overestimate how central those two verses in Deuteronomy 6 were for any Jewish person from the 2nd century B.C. forward, those two verses were a morning and evening prayer and confession of faith. They were the bookends of Jewish life, that God is one and there is no other, and you are to love him with all of your being. Every ounce of your life is to be poured out in serving and loving and honoring him. But then he quotes also from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 18, when he says, after saying, this is the the first, the greatest, and the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, when you go back and look in Leviticus chapter 19, the whole uh, verse, chapter of verse 18 reads like this, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't quote the first part, but he only quotes the second part. And why might that be? Well, I think it's very safe to say that in the Old Testament, it's very hard to get past the idea that your neighbor in the Old Testament always included, not just those of your own people, but it included the, the alien, it included the sojourner, it included the, the fatherless, it included the widow, it included the lowest and the least. But by Jesus' time, especially when he encountered the religious leaders, the whole idea of a neighbor really was very in-house. And Jesus corrects this and deepens it and takes it to a whole other level. If you at all remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, where Jesus essentially says, every human being is your neighbor. Even those you consider to be your greatest enemies. Jesus takes this whole idea of loving your neighbor to a, an intensity and a level that no one has to this point. And as I, I mentioned, Jesus is the first one that we know of who connected these two commandments. And why might he do that? I think the reason that he does that is really it's, it's found in the idea that God has made us in his image. So that to, to love God himself implies that we would also love everything which reflects him in any way. And if you think about it like this, that it would be then inconsistent to love him, but then to not love those who bear his image. So when Jesus says you are to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that necessarily means that you would love anything that he loves, especially people who bear his image. And therefore, Jesus weds these two commandments together, these two greatest commandments, as a way of summarizing what the entire Old Testament is about. What you and I, as human beings made in his image, are called to. And so these two commands, they're intertwined, and they require, as I think you can see fairly obviously, they require total devotion, and they lay claim to every dimension of our lives. And they also require a heart-searching integrity toward our neighbors. So let's, I want to spend just a couple minutes as we look at this demand of love to dig in a little bit on these and, and see where they take us. Notice this idea of total devotion. Where, does that come, get, where, do we, where do we get that? Well, if you look in verse 29, four times when Jesus answers this question, he mentions the word all. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. In other words, this is not a hobby. This isn't a pastime. God isn't asking for a little bit here and there when you can fit it in. God is is claiming absolute authority. He is making an absolute claim on every nook and cranny of your life. And not only that, when Jesus begins with this passage from Deuteronomy 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus is saying he requires perfect devotion, perfect loyalty. 
It's another way of Jesus saying positively here what in the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. It's a statement about what you worship. It's a statement about what your heart is drawn to, what your deepest desires long for and are attached to. It's a total claim upon your life of exclusive love and worship. One writer puts it like this, that God is to be the object of the, of the devotion of my heart. The center of my whole being must be directed towards him and his glory. He must come first in my ambitions and motives. I am to love him too with my soul so that all my affections and emotions will be in tune with his will instead of flame with a desire to serve him. Then I must give my thought life to him, seeking to keep my mind pure and to have all my thinking disciplined and controlled by what he has revealed in Scripture. And all my strength and my energy must be his too. So not only is it this comprehensive claim of total devotion and loyalty to him, it also involves a heart-searching integrity toward your neighbors. Notice what he says here. It's, I think, very fascinating when, you, when it'd be easy to miss if you, if you run past it when he says in verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. My guess is that's probably fairly familiar to many. It's often referred to as the golden rule, do as unto others as you would have them do unto you kind of idea. But think about this for a moment. The Bible assumes... It takes for granted that we daily act in our own best interest. I find it fascinating, I think, what Jesus is doing here. He, the Bible assumes that you are very much concerned with your time, what you need. And Jesus turns that on its head and says in the very same way, you need to be concerned for your neighbors. It, the command here to love one's neighbor takes the concern that we naturally exhibit toward ourselves and commands us to extend it to others as well. Think of it like this. Uh, perhaps a bit more uh, penetrating way to think of it is the Bible assumes that you are inherently selfish. That we have no problem spending an enormous amount of time and energy and resources and our well-being. And Jesus flips that on its head and says, think about how self-absorbed you are, how self-centered you are, how self-preserving you are. And then he says, you need to be like that towards your neighbors. So the question for us is, to what degree does our love for our neighbors resemble our commitment to our own well-being. It's that strong. And when we discover that there may not be much of a resemblance, we need to not run away from that. We need to not cover it over. We need to call it what it, what it really is. And I think there is a danger for us uh, in, this re- in this respect, when we look at the demand of love and what Jesus says here is the summary of the Old Testament scriptures and what God requires, there's a tendency to perhaps to applaud this. 
almost like the, the, the scribe does here. He agrees. He says, yes, you're right. This is, this is exactly what it's all about. And yet, we can applaud it, but not apply it. So I want us to take a moment and look at, by applying it, to try to look at what is then the, then the true nature of sin. How does this summary that Jesus gives us help us understand our own hearts? You see, for many people, I think most people, our, our basic conception of sin is, is almost wholly in terms of actions, and usually in terms of bad actions, the things you're not supposed to do. And there's certainly a measure of truth to that, but that's not... The, the entire way the scriptures think about what sin is. And in fact, that this conception that I think is fairly common is, I think the reason why many religious people remain stuck in an endless cycle of self-righteousness. When you conceive of sin as primarily doing things, wrong things, when you don't do those, or if you think you don't do those, you will inevitably look down on the people who do. But it's also the reason why many irreligious people get so weary of being told by religious people how they should live. Because again and again, irreligious people are told, well, you just don't measure up. You continue to make decisions you shouldn't make. And for many of them, they just don't agree with that. And it's wearying, not to mention ruins friendships and relationships. But see, Jesus' summary of God's law teaches us that actions or behaviors, whether good or bad, don't really get to the bottom of what sin really is. In fact, Jesus here teaches us that the true nature of sin is a failure to know and to love God. It's that simple. It's a failure to love Him alone. So let me give you an example. Uh, Perhaps you might remember Psalm 51. It's a psalm of David. And the, uh, the preface to the psalm tells us that it comes out of David's adultery against, uh, with Bathsheba. And that David had concocted this scheme to make uh, her husband die. He plotted a scheme to kill Uriah in order to take his wife. And then, in Psalm 51, verse 4, David makes this profound statement. He says in his prayer to God, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David had discovered that he had lost his first love. It's amazing to me that what David says here is, against you and you only have I sinned. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. He killed the guy, and he took his wife, and he's the king, and the kingdom goes to shambles. It was terrible, awful. He sinned against all kinds of people, and yet what David sees and what you and I need to see without which you will never truly grasp the true nature and true conviction for sin, is at the end of, end of the day, every, every sin in our hearts is first and foremost a sin against God. And until that sinks in, we will never really see how heinous it is. It will either be inconvenient, or we will be simply afraid of it, 
for the consequences that may come from it, but you will never be freed from it. Another example, uh, there's a, a pastor who lived in London in the middle of the last century and uh, by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he had this to say about this very idea of helping, helping us to get a, a true sense of what, what, is, what sin really is. It's something that's not popular these days, and yet we need to come to face it if we're going to understand the riches and the glory and the grace of, that God gives. So he says this. He says, he gives you a test. He says, my test is a positive one. Do I know God? Is Jesus Christ real to me? I'm not asking whether you know things about him, but do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life, the soul of your being, the source of your greatest joy? He is meant to be. He made us in such a way that we might live in communion with him and enjoy him and walk with him. You and I are meant to be like that, and if we are not like that, it is sin. That is the essence of sin. We have no right not to be like that. That is sin of the deepest and worst type. The essence of sin, in other words, is that we do not live entirely to the glory of God. Of course, by committing particular sins, we aggravate our guilt before God. But you can be innocent of all gross sins and yet be guilty of this terrible thing, of being satisfied with your life, of having pride in your achievements, and of looking down on others and feeling that you are better than others. There is nothing worse than that because you are saying to yourself that you are somehow nearer to God than they are, and yet the whole time you are not. It's hard not to finish reading that and then think what Jesus says here to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You can think that you may be near, and yet you are not. Yet there's a second aspect here of the true nature of what sinful self, sin, sin is, and it's this idea of selfishness. He takes for granted that we, like I said, that we do love ourselves. And yet Jesus, in this very penetrating way, Jesus commands everyone to put just as much effort, time, and resources into loving your neighbor as you do yourself. Now, remember how this passage ends, and we mentioned at the beginning that when Jesus, he sees this scribe, he answers wisely, and again, he says, you are not far from the kingdom. I can't help but wonder what he must have thought. What, what does Jesus mean by this? Um, what, are, what is he missing? As you hear Jesus say that, and as you hear what we're talking about from this passage, how does it hit you? Would you consider yourself in the kingdom, not far from the kingdom, maybe excluded from the kingdom? Where would you put yourself and why? You see, Jesus, he says this to the scribe at the end, you are not far from the kingdom, I think, to get you to ask him, Jesus, How do I get all the way to the kingdom? 
What do I need? Do you have that answer? And Jesus asks, says this in order that we might ask him that very question. Now he might show us, where do you get the power to love this way? Because my guess is, if we're being honest, what we're being told here by Jesus is utterly overwhelming. It's not possible. We don't love God this way. We don't love even those we love the most this way. And so where do we get the power to love like this? You see, the key to entering the kingdom is coming to admit that your utter helplessness and need for God to intervene in ways that no amount of effort or religious observance could secure. It's striking that the scribe here in verse 33, when he's uh, endorsing, if you will, Jesus' answer, he makes this very interesting statement at the end when he says, to love God and to love your neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, it's important to realize these whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, those were referred to the sacrifices that the worshipers did not eat as part of worship. They were entirely consumed. And therefore, they were the sacrifices that signaled and indicated total devotion to God, total yielding of yourself to Him. And yet, the scribe sees here, not even that is as important as love from the heart for God. And so it's very striking that this passage here, when the scribe says that, is almost a verbatim quotation from Psalm 40, verse 6, which we read earlier, which also appears in Hebrews chapter 10. Let me read to you what's said here, because here we find the key for the power to love this way. The writer there says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What's Jesus referring to in the, in the words of the writer of Hebrews when he says, I have come to do your will, O God? It's, it's, it's so striking that this passage uh, quotes Psalm 40 and essentially says God doesn't care about sacrifices and offerings, which if you've ever read the Old Testament, that's a crazy thing to say. <laughs> They're all over the place. It's everywhere. And yet what Jesus being quoted here in the book of Hebrews is saying, compared to his body, comparing to what he came to do, to do the will of his father, all of those sacrifices and offerings vanish. They are of no significance. God does not take delight in them because there is only one sacrifice. There's only one offering that God delights in. Even at infinite cost to himself. And it is the death, the suffering of his one son, Jesus, who came to do his will. And what will would that be? 
It is the will of God summarized here to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you leave tonight and you're thinking, man, I have to get better at this, you have not heard me. (laughs) You can't do this. It's not possible. Do not believe your own uh, stats. (laughs) You can't love this way. That is why Jesus had to come and do it for you. And it's only until you see that and you believe that and you confess that and you cry out to God, God, help me. I am a sinner. Help me. You will never love. You will never experience this love that we have in the gospel. See, the law of God cannot make you love this way. You can't make you love this way. Only the gospel can do this. And so Paul, the apostle in Romans 8, writes this. He says, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's the power. It's what Jesus came to do in dying in your place. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, not according to your strength, to your creativity, to your ingenuity, to your power, but according to the power that Jesus gives through his spirit. And this is all a gift. It cannot be earned. And so we read from the Apostle John in 1 John when he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's the power. That's where we get it from. Not living in our own strength, but living through him. So how can we do this? How can you begin to love this way? Especially when this kind of love does not come naturally. Uh, I want you to consider just two ways that you can work into your life the free grace of God. First of all, think of it like this, that Jesus, in the gospel, he calls you his friend. He calls you his friend. In speaking to his disciples, he says, Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you are a believer in Jesus, you are his friend. But notice, it even goes further than this. Even more than that, the free grace of God reaches even to his enemies, which every single one of us either currently is, or you once were. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? See, I'd have no other way to tell you how, how do you respond to what Jesus is saying here other than you have to go to the gospel every day. 
You have to marinate on, meditate on, look deeply into the love of Jesus towards you at infinite cost to himself. There is no other way to change a human heart than for the cross of Jesus in the hands of his spirit to change you from the inside out. So then what is Christianity then really all about? Is it having the answer that the scribe had? Yes, it is. But it's much more than that. It's having the Savior who gave him the answer. Do you know this Jesus? We need to come back to this message again and again to relearn again and again. What is this demand of love? What does it require of me? How far short do I fall from it? We need to see the true nature of our sin. But even more than that, and most importantly, we need to see the power of the gospel to love Jesus as he has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we consider this passage and uh, Jesus' answer to this most significant and important question of what's the most important thing? What do you most care about? What do you most want from us is love from our hearts to you and to care for our neighbors the way that you have cared for us. And Father, we are in very, very, very deep water. This is far beyond our ability to carry out. And therefore, we call upon you, cry out to you, please have mercy. Please forgive us for falling so far short. Please forgive us. And we pray that the message of the gospel, the the work of Jesus on our behalf and in our place, loving you perfectly, doing your will, loving his neighbors, even to the point of death, I pray, Father, that that message would find a grip in our hearts and in our lives and in our community in such a way that we would find strength to every day follow after our risen king in effort to love you and to love our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.